again, it's just a privilege to be here and to share uh, in your service this morning and just to bring what I believe God has um, been putting on my heart for, for this morning. Um, in the week that's gone, we, Catherine and I went down to uh, Mount Cook. We, we called in at Geraldine, some family and friends, and then a work colleague in Timaru, and then headed on down to um, Mount Cook. And, and we had one day which the weather cleared and we were able to get up to um, Hooker Lake and, uh, and see, see what we could of the mountain. Um, but what was really cool was the icebergs sitting in the, in the lake, the ones that drop off, I guess, off the glacier. And uh, they, they were really cool. So it's been a, it's been a blessed week. Um, a little bit about myself. So I'm um, fellowshipping, worshipping at Langholm Baptist Church and have been assisting this past year with our redevelopment. So we've had a, a big um, drive to, to do a $1.2 million um, build and uh, it's, it's, it's gone really well, it's gone really well. Um, so we're about 95% of the way there, and we're aiming to open it in March, um, and really looking forward to that. And I can take one of those hats that I've been wearing off and uh, think about, about something else. Right. Last week I mentioned, for those that were here, um, that I found Auckland's second lockdown. So that occurred in around September of 2020, um, particularly hard in terms of just un uncertainty and, and well-being. And um, I got a bit down. And yet for all of that, I have to say, it was during that second lockdown that I felt God um, repeatedly speaking to me about just how great his affections are. Uh, for me, his son. And so what I'm going to share this morning is kind of, um, that's, the, that's the sparking point, that's the, the jumping off point for, um, for this message. And um, so it's kind of a personal journey and a little bit, um, uh, you know, um, putting it out there. But many times during the night, during that, that lockdown, I'd wake up about three or four in the morning, as, as um, you tend to do as you get a bit older, and um, I would hear the song just gently playing in my mind. If we can have that um, now. And this was the song that I heard. Some of you that are more my vintage will remember this. But have a listen, see if you can pick up the theme that is just coming through this particular song.
okay. It's cool. So it was quite unusual because it wasn't just once or twice that I'd wake up thinking this. It was maybe five or six times um, I'd wake up and, and I'd, I'd, I'd hear this song. And I remember this particular version of it. There are others more recent, obviously, in colour. But this, I remember this when it, when it came out. And um, I don't think I was having any mid to late life crisis. But, but I really sensed that God was speaking through this beautiful song. And uh, so that's what I want to unpack a little bit today. It's a song written by Brazilian Antonio Carlos Jobim and made famous by the vocalist Astrid Gilberto. Now, that's the one on, on that particular version. And the sax player Stan Getz in 1963. And I remember seeing it in about 1965, maybe 66, on our parents' black and white um, TV at home and being absolutely captivated for two reasons. Firstly by the simplicity and the universal appeal of its theme. So what was the theme, anyone? Stunned silence. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you what the theme is. The theme is one of unrequited affection. The songwriter, it says, he was sitting in a cafe, and every day this particular girl would walk down. Um, I mean, they've since recorded it and, and done a doco of it, and it's become very famous across the world, but she'd go down either to get a pack of cigarettes for a mum, or she'd go down to the beach with her togs to have a swim or to sunbathe, and that was in um, Rio de Janeiro, Coca Cabana Beach, and, and the songwriter was sitting in the cafe, and, 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 just, and, and you just get the, get the sense, he says, um, he would give his heart gladly, but she looked straight ahead, not at me. And even as a 13 or 14 year old boy, you had the odd crush on the odd girl, I totally got that. But the second reason that it, it, it really had appeal was this. It was the instant appeal of the rhythmic Brazilian samba-infused uh, jazz sound that, that, for those of us that were alive in the 60s, was as different as you could get from the R&B of the Beatles or the Kinks or the Who or the Stones. Any of that British pop, this was just radically different and it was... Um, I really enjoyed it. And along with a group called Sergio Mendes in Brazil 66. Does anyone remember them? Yep, and at least one other person that was alive in the 60s. That's good. Um, they had a huge influence on music in the 60s uh, and popular music. But to underscore the universal nature of the appeal, <coughs> of its appeal, the girl from Ipanema is reportedly the second most recorded song of all time. I mean, you got to remember, it was written in 62, um, and so that amount of time has been recorded by, I don't want to quote the wrong figures, but the second most number of recordings um, of is this particular song, following Paul McCartney's song, uh, breakup song, Yesterday, is number one. And multiple art artists from Frank Sinatra to Ella Fitzgerald to the late Amy Winehouse have also made recordings um, or covers. But beyond its appeal as a song, and I remember seeing it in the 60s and, as I say, being just captivated um, by its theme and by its sound. But what the question that arose for me was, what was God highlighting by repeatedly bringing it back five or six nights in a row 
to my mind during lockdown. And as I thought about the intent of the songwriter to gain the girl's attention, but to no avail, it struck me that perhaps the Lord had been trying to get my attention, but we just don't see. So I began searching the scriptures to see how the theme of unrequited love between God and his people is described. And so that's kind of the journey we're going to go on this morning, just to follow that theme through from, um, from the text. And the first book that I searched through was the Song of Solomon, a love poem between Solomon and his young bride. And the book's been interpreted um, and therefore included in the canon by the, both the Jews and Christians to describe the love that God has for his people. For Jews, it's Yahweh's love for Israel, his bride. For Christians, it's Christ's love for his bride, the church. And it's not a transactional type of love. It's not a, you know, just a trust or a friendship type love. It's a full-on passionate, um, you know, emotional, sort of absolutely um, stunning type of love that is described. So let's have a look. And in, in um, Song of Songs 4 verse 9 and 10 says, The man says, You've stolen my heart, my sister. My bride, you've stolen my heart with one glimpse of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. In other words, their love is intoxicating. And then verse 16, the bride replies, Awake, north wind. Come, south wind, blow on my garden. That's my fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. And the metaphor of Yahweh as a husband to his bride Israel is one that the Old Testament prophets um, pick up repeatedly. However, it's not always for the purpose of celebrating Israel's fidelity. In Hosea, for instance, the prophet is encouraged to marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for, like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. In Hosea 1 verse 2. And thus Hosea's own marriage was to be like a sign of how Yahweh felt about how unfaithful Israel, that she'd been promiscuous. And the charge that Israel had become like a promiscuous woman is echoed in the prophet Ezekiel's description in his chapter 16. You became very beautiful. You rose to be queen. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. At its core, the chief complaint that Yahweh levels against his bride Israel is one of unfaithfulness, failure to keep Torah and seeking after the false gods of the other nations. The very things that Moses had warned them about while they were in the wilderness. And yet God continued to love with an unrelenting passion. He never stopped loving. The incarnation of God coming in the, in the flesh in the person of Jesus was the ultimate demonstration of the Father's unrelenting love. 
Jesus' mission was to lay down his own life as an expression of the Father's love. It was, and it is, sacrificial and powerful. And so perhaps during COVID-19, I'd lost sight of the extent of the Father's love. Perhaps God was using the song about unrequited love to remind me that his love is unrelenting. Perhaps I'd had my eyes on the wrong prize. Have you ever had your eyes on the wrong prize? When I was in my early 20s um, and beginning to think about finishing uni and what I was going to do with the rest of my life and um, love interests and, and so on and so forth, I had an experience of unrequited love that at the time was pretty shattering. The year was um, December 1973, January 1974, and a group of mates and I took off on motorbikes and we rode down from Auckland down to Wellington, across the strait and down the west coast, up the Harst and then back up to Christchurch. You see, we were there to take part in a Christian outreach for about 10 days of the Commonwealth Games that were happening at the time. And um, we would meet in the morning. I can't remember. I think it might have been Opawa Baptist was the meeting place. that does sort of ring a bit of a bell. But anyway, we met there in the morning and we had teaching from YWAM. And I think David and Dale Garrett led the worship. And then in the afternoon, we were portioned into teams and we would go both in the afternoon and the evening to a variety of um, kind of outreach, either events or activities um, that made up our time. Anyway, a long story short, I'd for a, long, uh, for a few months, not a long time, a few months, I'd been keen on a girl from a youth group in Mangere. And this wasn't Catherine, uh, I'm sad to say, but a friend of hers in the youth group. And on the final night of the outreach, I offered to take her home on my bike to her billet's home and let her know how I felt. Well, to her credit, she was straight up and she says, nope, there's no hope. And of course, that was like <laughs> a dagger to the heart. Um, so it was one very sorry mess of a lad who had to arrive from Christchurch to Auckland um, in the rain, I might say, the next day. And while it was devastating, it actually provided the motivation to forget um, pursuing a girlfriend for the time being and focus on completing the nine or so papers that I needed to get my degree at uni. And amazingly, that's exactly what happened. On the day of our first exam, Catherine and I agreed, admitted to each other that we had feelings for each other and we agreed to go out and the rest, as they say, is history. What's my point? just that many of us will have experienced something akin to this of having our eyes on the wrong prize, of being told that our affection is not reciprocated. So if we can feel this sort of emotion, surely it must be amplified to a greater power in the heart of God when the centre of his affection turns their backs on him. See, coming back to the Old Testament time, God had lavished his affection on Israel, provided a man after his own heart to lead them and King David, only to find that after a few generations, his bride Israel was no longer faithful. The prophets described the deep anguish in, in the heart of God that he should need to discipline and chastise her. 
And we also get the glimpse of emotion shared by the Godhead when, when Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept at their unwillingness to receive him. Okay, we're going to the next one. Yeah. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring your peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in. And then, of course, he's talking about what the Romans did um, uh, some four years later. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. See, the early church fathers in the 3rd and 4th century concluded that both the Father and the Spirit shared in this outpouring of grief. And they called this idea perichoresis. And here's a summary of this idea. Genuine acceptance removes fear and hiding and creates freedom to know and to be known. In this freedom arises a fellowship and sharing so honest and open and real that persons involved dwell in one another. There is union without loss of individual identity. When one weeps, the other tastes salt. It's only in the triune relationships of Father, Son and Spirit that personal relationships of this order exist. And the early church used this word perichoresis to describe it. So what one member of the Trinity was experienced the other two members also felt without losing a fraction of their identity. I think it's really hard for us to kind of glimpse what it must be like within the, the relationships within the members of the Trinity. We get a small glimpse, I think, if you go to an absolutely wonderful symphony orchestra or a world-class ballet or a, a top football match. It can be round ball or oval ball, it doesn't matter. And you see a movement picked up by one person. You know, it could be the lead violinist, or it could be in a, in a football match, you know, just um, the centre forward. He, he starts with a move. He, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a movement, and then all of a sudden, the whole team is moving in unison and harmony until the, the, the achieved goal of, um, of scoring. Or like in a ballet you know, where, again, the principal dancer might pick up a theme and then the whole thing just moves in unison and harmony. We get that um, kind of sense that it's deeper and fuller and richer because the whole section is moving as a team and not just as individuals. But that leads us into the second picture. We've, so we've talked about um, God's relationship to Israel as, as his bride, but in the New Testament, um, we see God's love described as passionate, as between a man and a woman, uh, when Paul the Apostle describes the church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25, 32 compares the love that Christ has for his bride, the church, with that of a husband for his wife. Christ laid down his life for his bride, that he might sanctify her, make her holy, Cleanse her by the washing of the water of the word. So being made holy is a function of something that Christ has done for us by a sacrifice. And being cleansed happens as we allow the word of God to cleanse us daily and weekly. 
I remember when our kids were still at primary school and we would go with a bunch of other friends, a little bit like John does up to um, Whananaki, but we'd go to Kaiwi Lakes just north of Dargaville um, in Northland there and the beautiful freshwater lakes and we'd, we'd camp by the um, lakes and, uh, and just had a whale of a time. The beautiful thing was that because it was freshwater, um, you, could, you could swim, you could water ski, you could um, troll for trout, um, it was just a wonderful thing. And um, because the water was fresh, it meant as well as being refreshing, it doubled as good for getting um, good for bathing, especially since there were no showers. So of course, the kids loved that. But having regular access to God's word fulfills the same function. It cleanses every part of us. To quote Charles Swindoll, just as clear, fresh water cleanses our bodies, God's written word washes us clean deep down inside our souls. It purifies our thoughts, scrubs our motives, and it cleanses our conscience as we absorb and obey its truths. Ephesians 5 goes on to say that he might, that Christ might present to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. And there are other scriptures which underscore the church as a pure bride promised to one husband, to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, um, Christ says this, speaking to the church at Corinth, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So that whole idea of, of um, cleansing, of purity, of holiness, is very um, interwoven into, into these passages. In Revelation 21 verse 2, John saw the heavenly city come down out of heaven as a bride, the text says. So the heavenly city is not the bride, but it has some of the characteristics of the church. That is, it's gloriously radiant. The inhabitants of the city, the redeemed of the Lord, will be holy and pure, wearing white garments of holiness and righteousness. As one scholar put it, the city is called the bride because it encompasses all who are called the bride. Just as the students of a school might be called the school. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I think back to when I was in, um, I don't know, 6th or 7th form, year 12, 13, and you'd go into assembly, into the assembly hall, and all the students would traipse in, and we'd all sit there, and then the um, DP would stand on this, he'd be the only one on stand, and he'd say, school stand. So we all did what we were told, of course. Um, <laughs> and, well, we did back then. <laughs> And, um, and then, then the rest of the teacher, the staff would, would um, traipse across the, the stage and then finally the principal would come in and he would say, school be seated or something like that. So what he wasn't saying when, when the deputy principal said school stand, he wasn't asking the, the, the buildings to levitate, he was referring to us as the body of the school in the same way, the bride and the city. The ultimate consummation of the union of Christ and his bride comes, of course, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, still in our future, found in Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
and fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. You know, there's definitely something of mystery of looking through a veiled glass, of kind of seeing outlines but not really seeing particulars when it comes to um, describing the wedding of the Lamb. Scripture hints that it will be glorious without describing it in clear detail. And one way I've come to think of it is um, comparing it to the transformation from architects' detailed plans for our new building the difference between having those plans to actually walking through the finished and completed building. When we began our building project at church, I received from Pat, our architect, about 50 sheets of, of A1 size um, design specs. And most of them were highly technical. And although I could read them, I didn't really understand them and I couldn't, well I kind of could understand them, but I couldn't interpret it into a visual um, impression of, oh, it's going to be this. Fortunately the builder could. <laughs> but the majority of the congregation couldn't either. And I've lost count of the number of members who as the buildings progressed have come to me with a comment, look, oh, I didn't know it was going to look so attractive. Well that's wonderful the way they've done that. Or I'm really impressed with this feature or that feature. And likewise, I think our ultimate union with Christ will be beyond anything we can think or possibly imagine, but it will be truly lasting and totally fulfilling and totally satisfying. For as the Apostle John says, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. Not what we are, but not what, um, not what we will be has not been made known. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So perhaps awakening, coming back to my original thought, to the sound of this um, song about unrequited love, was God's way of reminding me that maybe for me there was still more that I needed to attend to in order to be ready for the wedding supper of the Lamb. I remember um, one wedding that I, I got to take in an Oratea church, which is in the foothills of the Waitakere Ranges. Um, it's a beautiful church with a kind of a stained glass window at the back and, and, and palm fronds sort of that you look through and back up into the bush. Uh, and this was about 20 years ago. So the groomsmen were all dressed um, in their suits. The parents were carefully um, positioned, those that had separated and found another partner and so on, that sort of thing. And uh, the congregation were patiently waiting. In fact, we're all waiting for the bride to arrive in order to begin the service. After 20 minutes of nothing happening, we received a phone call from one of the bridesmaids to say that it would be up to an hour. As another bridesmaid had seen her here in the mirror, freaked out and decided it needed rewashing and proceeded to do it there and then. I suggested to the families that they might like to um, take time out to uh, move outside and those that smoked 
did so, and the rest of us just waited under the cool of the, of the trees. Needless to say, when the, fi- the wedding finally did get underway, there were some less than favourable comments directed towards the bridal party. You see, there's no problem with taking the time to prepare. There is a problem with leaving it to the absolute last minute, as this bridal party sadly found out. So the passage in Revelation 19 concerning the bride being prepared for the wedding of the Lamb makes plain that the clothes represent, they stand for the righteous acts of the saints, not the good works done in order to obtain salvation, but the good works done because of salvation. Because as Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Because the bridegroom is once more showering his affection upon his bride, the church, that's you and me, I think it's even more important that we learn to walk in his ways and do the works that he's called us to do. I guess I've been sharing this message out of a conviction and in this season of distress and turmoil that currently is sweeping the world, God is wanting to reinforce just how powerful his love is for each one of his children. That we are the apple of his eye, the fruit of Jesus' suffering, as it's recorded in Isaiah 53 and verse 11. That passage, you know, can be translated one of two ways, and... um, I'll just read that because I think it's really came home to me this week. Talking of Jesus um, on the cross in a prophecy, it says, um, It was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Now, that's one translation. But there's another translation that says um, he will see the fruit of his suffering and will be satisfied. And, and the fruit of his suffering is, is you and I, all those who have come to believe in his name, um, are here because of, of his, his action on the cross. That he was thinking of us during his darkest hour is not just a sentimental theme that we sing at altar calls. It really finds its foundation, I believe, in the text. If Christ endured his greatest test because of the love and passion of his heart for all those who would believe in his name, then doesn't it make sense that that same passion and love God has for each one of us be the motivational springboard for how we serve him in 21? The parable of the ten virgins found in Matthew 25 tells the same story. The five wise bridesmaids kept the oil in their lamps full and the five foolish ones did not tend to their lights. And I sense that God is encouraging each one of us to rekindle the oil of intimacy for our own relationship with the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the Worship team, are you guys coming back or are we just having the... Yep, okay. And to be fair, I think I need to put my hand up um, and say that I'm a primary recipient 
of this message as well. I've found many times during 2020 that I've trusted in my own ability to figure things out and try and formulate a pathway forward in terms of the project and its funding when lockdowns have occurred. And over and again, I've had to come and sit quietly before the Lord and hear him say, Peter, you're going to have to trust me on this because you're not in a position to see the end from the beginning. Only I am. And it may be that for some of you, like me, you've taken your eyes off the main prize of that close, intimate communion with Jesus above all else. So I think it would be a good time to just acknowledge that, that we are a work in progress. As the song says, he is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy, when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions, eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. So as we draw this to a close, can we stand and, 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 and make a response to him that we don't want him to be one of many voices, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who is above all, and is fierce in his affections for us. Okay. Let's stand. If you know this song, why don't we, we join in and we sing it together as, a, as a, just a, a response to what God has been sharing this morning. <laughs>